Uh, let's turn our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. Continuing our study through the book of Romans. Uh, you can also join us on a Wednesday night. We're in the book of uh, Philippians. We're about, uh, we're in chapter, chapter 2. So I encourage you to come out. We always have a great time on Wednesday night. And Paul, <coughs> excuse me, writing here. We want to read uh, up until verse 8, chapter 5. Verses 1 through 8, one of my favorite sections here in Romans. <clears throat> and Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but also, we also glory in tribulations. Do we really? <laughs> we have to be careful we don't lie here. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. And yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we rejoice in that. We're thankful, Lord, for the gift of salvation. Lord, may we never get over it. Lord, may we always be enthralled by the thought of your great love. Lord, whereby you reached down, you called our name, you revealed yourself to us. And Lord, that began the most beautiful adventure in all of life and all of history. To know, the, to know you, the true and the living God. And Father, I pray for anyone in our midst this morning, Lord, that that hasn't happened for them yet. I pray that it would. I pray that, Lord, your spirit would work and probe. And if you have to pry, Lord, into our hearts, into our lives. Lord, you know what, Lord, we need. And Lord, we realize all that we need, all in life that satisfies and fulfills, Lord, is to be found in you, in you alone. And so, Father, I pray that as we consider these verses, Lord, these truths before us, that, Lord, you would speak, Lord, to us, Lord, not only in a corporate sense, but, Lord, in an individual way. Lord, I pray you grant faith today. Grant faith in that ability, Lord, whereby to hear you and to respond to you. And, Lord, to act upon that faith. So, Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for the mercies 
that have come to us and continue to come to us. Lord, not only initially, but Lord, all through our sojourn, all through our lives. Lord, you have been so incredibly wonderful and faithful. For that, Lord, we're, we're honored, we're blessed, we're thankful. And Lord, we invite you now that by your spirit, you would whisper, Lord, your truth. Lord, speak it, we pray. Father, into our hearts, into our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, as we have been uh, looking at the book of Romans thus far, uh, the, uh, the theme, the key word, the theme of justification started in chapters 3 and 4, and we continue in that particular theme as we move in here to chapter 5. And as we said before, justif justification means that we've been acquitted, um, that because, of, because we have you know, put our faith and our trust and our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that basically he said that you're, you're forgiven. Uh, it's, it's like poof. Uh, and it's not because it's anything that we earned. It's nothing that we can do. Uh, we, we tend to uh, focus on that, uh, you know, thinking that uh, uh, perhaps maybe I can be good enough. You can, we can never be in and of ourselves good enough. Uh, we all stand basically in the same place. Like I said before, we're in the same boat. Uh, we stand at the foot of the cross, um, and we look to Christ for what he has done, what he has wrought for each and every one of us. And again, it's simply, God simply declaring the, the person who believes in Christ that you're righteous. And even though that person may have been a skunk of a person, now, of course, that's somebody else, that wouldn't be us, um, that he says you're righteous. And it's just, it's incredibly amazing when you think about the absolute total love of God. There's an author that I was reading just recently, and I like this author, uh, and he put it this way about this whole matter of justification. He says, we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness so that God even now sees us justified as if we had never sinned and always obeyed. Isn't that radical? I mean, that is totally radical when you think about it, the way God sees us now and that he views us because we have simply, and, it's so, and that's the beautiful thing about salvation, it's so incredibly simple, that we have put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. He has ascribed his righteousness to us, and it's as if, it's as if we have never sinned and always obeyed. And of course, what's radical about that is we have sinned a lot and we haven't obeyed a lot. And so praise God for his goodness and his mercy and his love uh, that he has wrought on, on our behalf. Now, as we get into these particular verses, we're seeing some of the benefits, some of the benefits. And I, as I uh, gave the, the message title, you know, some of the blessings, and again, the emphasis on uh, the plural there, some of the blessings of justification. And so we're seeing here, Paul simply reminded us of some, some of the benefits that have been accrued to us, that come to us, not because of our goodness, but simply because we have believed, we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has wonderfully done for us. And he says um, that, we're, that therefore we have been justified by faith, and so we have this peace with God now. Uh, and we know what that is, is that when we come to Christ, it's a wonderful peace that begins to come into our lives. Um, and, and we know that for anyone who has come to Christ, uh, there is no peace, you know, and you know, it's, it's interesting because it's one of the obsessions of the human race, isn't it? People are looking for peace. I think there's a lot of activities, there's a lot of things that we do 
uh, in life that hopefully we think well, that perhaps maybe we'll get to a place where my life will be sort of peaceful. Uh, people do all kinds of things to satisfy, I think, that longing. Uh, but it only really truly comes, you know, when we put our faith and our trust in him. And I think as we look at our world today, and, and it marked us at one point, uh, hopefully it doesn't mark us now, that we're not pursuing all these different things in life, thinking perhaps that maybe these things will simply, you know, give us uh, peace in some kind of a way. You know, the prophecy spoke about it over in Isaiah chapter 26, 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee. In other words, the person that has their mind uh, or their life focused upon Christ. And it's interesting because in the Hebrew, where it says perfect peace, in the Hebrew, it's shalom, shalom. And I was kind of thinking about that for many Jewish people that don't know Jesus Christ, their Messiah. You know, we have come to know, you know, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and, and I was kind of thinking about, in a sense, if you were to sum up all the aspirations of, you know, all the way through history of, of Judaism, what Judaism is, it's simply that. It's peace. It's shalom. And, and, and here Paul, you know, that old rabbi Paul, the apostle Paul now, uh, he is basically telling us that, that it's through Christ and through him alone that we find this peace. And the beautiful thing, uh, he says here, having peace, having or found peace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, through the blood of the cross, that this peace is not a passive peace. It's interesting. It's not passive. It's not idle. In other words, it's proactive. You know, Paul says this uh, a little bit later in Philippians chapter 4. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, uh, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when you think about the peace of God, uh, it's not just this idleness. It's, just not, it's not simply because there's no activity in your life. It's very proactive. As a matter of fact, it's protective. It's preventative. Uh, when he says here the peace of God will will guard your heart. The word there, if we could translate it, uh, is a military term. It's gar garrison. That the work of Christ in your life will just sort of garrison. And it's interesting, too, because I love this verse, because it says the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Because, you know, when we think about our lives sometimes, our lives are complicated. There's all kinds of issues that, that create worry, that create anxiety, that create fear, and all these kinds of things. But even though those things can be a part of our life, and, and maybe we might find ourselves surrounded by those things, that we can have a peace that surpasses that, that surpasses the understanding or the rationale or the logic of what's actually maybe perhaps taking place in our life. Has anybody ever said that to you? Or maybe you said that to somebody that's in the midst of a lot of turmoil in their life. And you say, well, you know, why are you so peaceful? You know, why is it that you seem like, uh, you know, that you're, you're sort of, you know, you're kind of in control, even though I know that your life is an absolute mess? And, of course, uh, you will tell them or they will tell you. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of what he's, he, he has done. And he gives to us a wonderful peace. It's because, you know, we have the peace of God. Uh, he goes later on to say that in chapter 4 of Philippians. He speaks about, first, first speaks about peace with God. You can't have the peace of God until you have peace with God, and that only comes when you commit your life to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's a wonderful, you know, proactive thing when we think about the peace of God. It's not just the absence of any difficulty, uh, because that's simply, that's simply not the reality of life, is it? Uh, of course, we're, all going to, we're always working, you know, through some kind of situation or uh, difficulty that causes a fear and anxiety, a worry, what the outcome's going to be. But I'll tell you what, when we're looking and focused on him, just like Isaiah said, 
you know, thou will keep him or her in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed upon him. And that's the key, isn't it? The key is really to keep our gaze, if you will, our spiritual gaze and our mind upon Christ. Uh, because when we get our eyes off of him, we start looking at the trial. We start looking at the problem. All of a sudden, it's exacerbated. It begins to grow. Um, you know, the, the mountain, in a sense, it becomes a mountain instead of a molehill that it ought to be. Uh, and again, we can have this wonderful peace. So one of the benefits, the first benefit that we find here <clears throat> of redemption and salvation. Now he says, through whom? Now when he says through whom, he's saying Christ. He's, he's referring basically, we would say it this way, through him. Through him, we have access by faith into this grace. I don't know if you've ever met somebody in your life that you're meeting that person was a game changer. Because the fact that you met them, they provided access for you into something that otherwise that you wouldn't have access to. You ever met somebody like that? I think oftentimes, you know, we meet people like that along the, you know, along the path of life. Uh, could be a relative, could be a friend, could somebody just, you know, somebody that we work with, somebody who takes a liking to us, and all of a sudden, uh, because we've met this person, there's this access that takes place, there's this door that kind of opens, and all of a sudden you find the direction of your life has changed because of the fact that you have met that person. And, and you know, when I think about that, because behind that person, behind that person is the grace of God. Behind that person is the person of Jesus Christ. I, I think a lot of times when we're going you know, through life, we don't understand because sometimes it happens to us even before we know Christ. Do you know that the grace of God was at work in your life even before you came to know Him? That was the only way you did come to know Him. You know, uh, I think one of the theological terms is provenient grace. In other words, the grace of God. I look back over my life and man, oh man, I look at some of the narrow things that I escaped. I look at some of the predicaments that I was in, and man, I, it's like, thank you, Jesus. Somebody was just in a car accident. I forget who it was. Somebody in the church. And they came out, just they, they just walked away from it unscathed. Wrecked the car. Totally wrecked the car. I can't remember who it was. Pardon me? It uh, wasn't Jim, but Jim, yeah, that Jim definitely uh, rolled his truck over and uh, walked out of that one. But it was somebody else. It was uh, the total annihilation of the car, and, and even the police were absolutely surprised. Grace. Grace. His, his mercy, his goodness at work in our life, certainly even, even before, you know, we, we knew him. He wonderfully sends people, situations, circumstances in our life, and they're game changers. They're wonderful game changers where uh, we experience his favor, his favor, his grace in some uh, kind of way. And again, we need to remember it, to be behind it is Jesus Christ. Behind it is his grace. When I think about his grace, you know, it's one of those gifts. Sometimes, you know, I've described grace as sort of uh, not just a singular kind of thing, but sort of like a cornucopia uh, where the blessings of God continue to come. And I when I think of grace, it is the gift of God that keeps on giving. Now, we were saved by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us. But I'll tell you what, we, we live by grace. 
We, we walk by grace. And a grace, again, is God's unmerited favor. You know, sometimes we're shocked at the grace of God when it goes out to some dirty rat. <laughs> well, Lord, why are you being so good to him <laughs> or, or her? It's just his magnanimous grace. That's just, that's just you know, be careful, too, that you don't, you know, kind of harden your heart against somebody because sometimes the more you harden your heart against somebody, God starts blessing that person. And, uh, and you get all torqued up and, you know, angry about it. But you know what he says here also, too, in this verse, too? He says, we stand in this grace. In other words, this position is stationary. I was kind of thinking of it in the light of maybe uh, if, if, say, you and I were to frequent the court of a king in antiquity. Uh, and think about some of these people. We've read the books. We've seen the movies where if they fall out of grace of the king, what happens? Well, they get their head lopped off or they get exiled, or they get fired, or whatever the case may be. They get, you know, get thrown into jail, whatever the case is. But when you think about the grace of God that comes to you and me, it's, it, it, it's permanent. It's incredibly, it's almost mind-boggling. Do you ever fall out of the graces of a human being? Well, of course you have. We all have at one time or another. And maybe you, just, maybe you just didn't perform the way you were supposed to perform, and all of a sudden, you know, you knew you were in the outhouse. And what I love about the grace of God is that we, we stand by His grace, by His mercy. It, it's a stationary place, almost, almost hard. And this is why when you get into the end of verse 2 and into verse 3, Paul's rejoicing. He's re rejoicing in the fact and anticipating the fact that God is going to be glorified. God is going to be glorified in this situation. Uh, we see that also, too, uh, over in Philippians as we're studying that on Wednesday night. It's a book, uh, one of his prison epistles, and really one of the themes of, of, of Philippians is joy, just incredible joy. You know, what's going on in your life right now? Do you feel maybe impinged? You know, in, in, in circumstances, do you feel like you're in a tight place? Do you feel like maybe you're in a situation where you just want to get out of it? Uh, how about just trusting him and how about looking to him in it uh, and receiving his joy? And here Paul, uh, Paul's just rejoicing. And, and again, look what he's rejoicing at. He talks about glorying in tribulations. Now, when's the last time you gloried in tribulation? I can't quite remember the last time I gloried in tribulation. But it's possible, it's possible to rejoice no matter what it is, whatever the circumstance it is that, that you and I go through. He says not only that, but also we glory in tribulations uh, knowing, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character hope. I call this the trifecta, okay? Perseverance, it's the word endurance, um, uh, the word character, we know it's simply that means. It's integrity within our lives, within our hearts, and it's hope. Okay, it's a hope. Uh, it's a basically it's an eternal hope. It's a hope in God. It's a hope in the goodness of God, in the favor of God, because of what God has done in our lives, that he's going to be favorable, you know, in the future. You know, sometimes, you know, when people are good to us, that's it. There may not be any more. The bank may be empty, but it's not the case with God. Uh, and so, again, we can have hope and trust and faith in Him and in His goodness. And you know, I think only the believer can really have this new attitude uh, towards trials and tribulations and difficult things because we know something. We know it's producing endurance. Uh, we know it's, it's basically 
um, shaping and forming character within our lives. It's giving us hope. Um, have you ever considered going into uh, running a marathon or a triathlon? You ever thought about that? I've thought about that, but that's as far as I've got with it, okay? I, I'm just not that... As a matter of fact, when I watched the, the, the Iron Man uh, just a month ago or whenever it was, um, I mean, I had a crazy thought of, of you know, getting into one. And uh, uh, only because they have an age category for me now. <laughs> but I don't know if you've seen over the last week, uh, there was a lady, um, 53 years old, and uh, she had her daughter. Her daughter had a brain injury at six years old. And she's always tried to bring her daughter, incorporate her daughter in her activities. Now, she's 53, and her daughter is, you know, maybe close to 30 years old or something like that. Uh, but, but because of her injury, uh, basically, uh, her mother had to have a capsule designed uh, for her to be in the water for her to do the Ironman. And she did what is, what is referred to as the half Ironman, uh, which is like a mile point two in the swim. It's... Uh, 60, I think 65 miles on the bike, and then it's 13.1 miles uh, on the marathon. It's called the Half Ironman. And, and here she is swimming. I'm watching her swim with her daughter in tow in this capsule. A mile and a half. I, I swam a mile when I was a Boy Scout. And I never want to do it again. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just thinking, you know, here, and they finished it. They finished it something like nine hours later. She finished a triathlon. And, and I, would, I, I, mean, I would like to do something like that, not to win, just to say, I did it. I did it. But you know something here? You and I are in the greatest of marathons. The Bible reminds us of that. We're in a race. And we need to finish well. Listen to what Paul, uh, not Paul, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews says, in verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, he's looking at the gallery. He's, he, it's, it's, it's a reference to the Ismithians or the Olympian games. He said we're surrounded by all these witnesses. And, and he's, for us, it's, it's those that have gone on before us. And, and those that are watching us now. People are watching your life. And your life, that's why don't give in, don't give up, don't quit. Because your life has bearing on the lives of other people, just like your faith does. Our faith has bearing in the lives of other people. God honors your prayers. God honors your faithful living. And a lot of times we don't realize who is watching us. Or who even, they're not even aware of the fact that we're praying for them. But look what he says. He says, let us lay aside every weight. The, the, the idea of an athlete. Laying aside the weights and the things that would slow us down and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You're in a race. Don't give up. Don't quit. And you know what I'm talking about because sometimes we feel like it. Sometimes we just feel like it. God will honor that faith. I'm at a point now where in my life I want to finish well.
I tell you what, I got too much invested in my Christian life. I want to finish well. I want you to finish well. God wants us to finish well. Whether we realize it or not, you know, our character presently, it's being forged. It's being forged in the furnace of our trials. Right now, the things that you and I are going through, there, there's a character that's being formed and forged you, with you and I and the things that we're going through. It's interesting, you know, the word persevere, you know what it means to stay under pressure? The term that he uses here, it means to stay under pressure, again, instead of running, instead of quitting, instead of giving up. And there's a lot of things in life, you know what? God just wants us to stay where we are and to trust him. To stay under that place of, of, of even though we come, we oftentimes come into life situations where I just want to, Lord, I want to I get out. And that's fine if that's God's will. But he wants us to trust him and to stay in that place even though, again, we don't like the pressure, but you know something? Do you know how diamonds are made? Great pressure. I mean, that's, God's doing something in, in your trials, my tribulations. He, he's doing something even though you want to get out of it. You know, it's too easy to escape everything and become a shallow person. There, there's a depth, there, there's a character, there's an integrity that, that takes place in the life of a believer, a child of God, when we trust him as we go through difficult things. Don't run. Don't run from your trial. Don't run from the circumstance. But any running, let us run to him, amen? He's a refuge. He's a refuge. He, he will help us in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our situation. And I love verse 5. Verse 5, I, I so often, you know, I, I kind of refer to this and quote this many different times uh, in, in different talks, you know, over the years. He says, now hope does not disappoint. You know, God will never betray our faithful expectations expectation that we have put in him. Now, it may require us to wait. It may require patience on our part as we're waiting for God to work. But again, as we're waiting and having an expectation of him, he will not betray that. God is wonderfully faithful. And this kind of hope that it's talking about in chapter 5, verse 5 here, is not a fantasy. A lot of people have hopes that are built on fantasies. Like the Mega Millions jackpot. You know, I'll be honest with you. We, we really need to pity that win, the people that win those things. It destroys them. It, it absolutely destroys these people. I mean, you'd, you'd have to have some kind of ironclad character to handle the input of that kind of power and money. But the hope that we have in him, it's not based on any kind of fantasy. And it's a hope, he says, it will not disappoint it will not leave you and I ashamed. And here's why. He says, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts, you know, by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. You see, the basis of our expectations of the Lord are basically, they're based on his love. 
Our expectations are based on His great love. Uh, I wrote down a few, I think I have it here somewhere. Maybe I don't. Where is it? I know it's here. There it is. I wrote the, had a few verses printed out uh, just underscoring the love of God. In Jeremiah, uh, God says this through Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He said that to his people. He said that to Israel. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It, Paul will say later in chapter 8, he'll say, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember reading about Richard, Richard uh, Wormbrand. He was a Romanian pastor, and uh, during uh, uh, the 60s and 70s, he was incarcerated for faithfully preaching. I believe he was in prison for about 14 years. And he said they starved him to such a degree, a monk torture, but they starved him to such a degree he couldn't remember anything. He couldn't remember his wife's name. He couldn't remember the names of his children. He began to forget scripture. But he said, there was one thing I never forgot, that God loved me. I forgot everything he said. He said, I was just skin and bones. I forgot everything. But I couldn't forget this, the love of God. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. First John puts it like this, Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who, is, who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And John would say, and this is a great uh, reminder here for us, there is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. For fear has, uh, the, the, the old King James says, fear has torment. And he says here, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not reached maturity in love. We love because he first loved us. So God's love is so absolutely important. And you know, when the Holy Spirit, he talks about the Holy Spirit here being poured out into our hearts. You know, when the Holy Spirit you know, enters our heart in our life. He witnesses of Jesus. He basically witnessed to us, to, us, to us of Jesus. But initially, we may not feel that love. I don't know what your experience was, but sometimes initially we don't feel and sense that love. We just know we're saved. We know the burden's lifted. We know we're cleansed. Again, I don't know what your experience is, but I just want to read something to you by uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this is a statement not of some wild charismatic, but of a very conservative English pastor. Listen to what he says. He says, you cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. But you can be a Christian without having the love of God shed abroad in your heart. All Christians have not had this experience, but it is open to all, and all Christians should have it. The author goes on to say, Dr. Lloyd-Jones 
goes on to cite examples from the 18th and 19th centuries of well-known evangelical leaders who have described how God's love seemed to come in wave after wave until they had melted away from the glory of it. I remember uh, reading uh, Moody's biography when he was in New York City. And I think if I recall the story, he met, he met three ladies. He met three prayer warriors, and they said, Mr. Moody, we are praying for you. He didn't know what that exactly meant, but he was appreciative of it. And he said, as he was walking down Wall Street, he began to experience wave after wave after wave of the love of God. So much so that it drove him to his room. And three days later, he had to say to God, oh, God, stop. <laughs> and I remember reading that and said, Lord, if you do that to me, you're going to have to kill me because I'm not saying stop. <laughs> Has that ever happened for you? That the love of God been poured into your heart, into your life in that way. I think people often say, well, how do I know God loves me? I need proof. I need proof. You know, in human relationships, we'll say maybe to a loved one, a spouse, a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, you need to prove your love to me. Here's proof, verse 6. For when we were still without strength, My paraphrase of that is when we were spiritually bankrupt. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you know, he's just not ref referencing the, the murderers of bad guys out there. He's really talking about all humanity. He died for the ungodly. See, God doesn't just make or talk about empty promises about love. He delivers in the most dramatic and awesome and incredible way, and that is simply this, the cross, the cross. That's his demonstration of his love for all time and for all eternity. That he came in the, God came in the person of his son to demonstrate his love. And that's why all we have to do is just believe in him. Not acquiring merit. Not, you can't work your way to heaven. I feel sorry for the people who think they can. Because it'll be such an incredible awakening and it'll be too late when they stand before their maker. But I realize that when it comes to accepting this kind of grace, it's not easy. It's not easy. And you know how our human nature is because when somebody does something good for you, what do you want to do? That's right. You want to reciprocate. You want to do something back. And when it comes to salvation and God's gift, it's free. Free gift. Just admit who I am. Admit that I'm needy. It's a tough pill to swallow. 
And a lot of times, the only reason we do that is because we're so broken down by life. We're so beat up by life. We're so crushed by our circumstances. We're such in a place of need where we say, yes, Lord, I'll take it. But, but when a person's doing well and they're high, in, you know, they're, 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 they're high and mighty in life, it's like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need God. You, you, yeah, yeah, you, you're a weak person. You, you, you know, you need a crutch. <laughs> but what glorious freedom it is when we realize, yes, Lord, I do need you. I do need that crutch. I need, you, I need you in my life. It's kind of like giving up the steering wheel to your life and just sort of moving over, saying, Lord, you take over. You drive my life. You lead my life. You direct my life. Because a lot of times we end up wrecking it. And that, that's fine. That's fine if that's what it takes to come to Christ. <laughs> you know, that's, that's great. That's fine. Why not do it now? Why, did, why not do it now, you know, before we trash, you know, everything? Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Now he argues in verse uh, 7 and 8 the, the, the greatness of this love. He says, for scarcely a righteous, uh, for a righteous man will one die. And yet perhaps or maybe for a good one, some would even dare to die. Now let me ask you this question. And you can make a short mental list. Who would you consider worthy of you dying for? Make up, please make up a quick list. Well, I would think, well, how about my spouse? In some cases... <laughs> <laughs> I hope. <laughs> How about family members? You know, children. What about that rebel in the house? Would you die for them? What about some coworkers? Nah. <laughs> some friends? What, what about some Christian friends, the family of God, some of the folks you know? At the end of the day, here's the deal. At the end of the day, we're only going to die for those we love. That's who we're going to, that's who, if it came push, push came to shove, they would be the ones that we would say, okay. I think sometimes, you know, that there is a, a circumstance where somebody dies for somebody they don't even know. You know, like the scenario of a guy who sees a child in the um, in the road, and here comes a big giant truck, and the truck can't stop, and he pushes the child out of the way, and it takes his life. But that happens because basically, it's, it's instinctual. We we don't really think about that; just sort of an instinct kind of a thing. But when it comes to thinking about who we would really die for, we'd be very, very, very selective. And the ones that we would die for would be the ones that we love 
we truly could say that I love that person enough where I take the hit. Sometimes in history that story has kind of worked its way out. I wrote this quote down and I want to read it to you. The degree of love is measured by the costliness of the gift to the giver and by the worth or worthiness of the recipient. Let me read it again. The degree of love is measured by the costliness of the gift to the, from the giver and to the person, to the recipient, whether worthy or unworthy. See, love is measured by that. I was talking to Margie about this because she uh, was reading a book to me several months ago, and, and I took it and read a couple chapters of it. It was, it was a, a, a devotional book by Corey Tendall. And she was sharing, she would, God used her to minister to people around Europe post-World War II. She lost all her family in a concentration camp. She was in a camp herself. Experienced brutality, all kinds of deprivations. And from time to time, she would meet people from the camp. And so at one time, she met this guard. And the guard had supposedly come to Christ. And oftentimes, there would be people in her life that hurt her and mistreated her. And particularly, she tells a story of when she met the guard who in a large part was responsible for the death of her sister Betty, Betsy. And how difficult it was because she had such hatred. And you can only imagine. But this man she met was another person and he supposedly came to Christ. And in the course of the conversation, she wanted to let him know that he had, she had forgiven him. But what was interesting, what transpired was that she said that when he walked away, I knew he didn't care one bit about it. Yes, he was legitimately saved. He knew Christ. And it kind of reminds me that sometimes as believers, we can forget about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. She was just kind of, in a sense, a little bit appalled by the fact that after what he had done for her, that he didn't really care to even say he was sorry. And she said that she forgave him. But it was like, so what? You know, when it comes to this whole matter of being forgiven and being redeemed and the price that Jesus Christ paid for me, and for all of us, I never want to get over that. Because I know that there was times in my life where I didn't appreciate it the way that I should. Oh, the love of God. The love of God toward us.
In verse 8, but God, <coughs> excuse me, demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, he says it in another place. We were enemies. Christ died for us. Longfellow said this, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life enough sorrow and suffering that it would disarm us of all our hostility. You know, we see one little aspect of somebody that does something to us and we don't like them anymore. Longfellow says if we could see the history of their sorrow, their suffering, it would just totally disarm us. The story uh, that takes place after the Civil War, such incredible division took place uh, after that war, the resentment, the burning resentment and hatred uh, that existed particularly in the southern part of our country because they had lost. And a bunch of hot-headed young men one day came to speak to Abraham Lincoln. He let him and he gave him audience. They were very angry. But through Lincoln's kindness and gentleness, through his grace and love, they were totally disarmed. And they went away from that conversation somewhat changed by it. They saw that here was a man that cared about us. That was one of the saddest things for Lincoln dying because there were certain discerning men said uh, the fact that he died because he really wanted to, he wanted to restore the southern part of the country. And then Johnson took over and Johnson coming from the south had such an anger toward the southern part of the country. And um, the reparations never really took place the way they should have. But a northern congressman came to Lincoln, very agitated, very angry. And basically what he said to them is, why are you befriending your enemies? And Lincoln, just in his inimitable way, smiled and said, he said, am I not destroying my enemies by making them my friends? And isn't that what the Lord does for us? Lord, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the expression of your love in a very bloody, dramatic way. <clears throat> May we never forget it. May we honor you, not just with our lips, but with our lives. Lord, I pray that, Father, as we we face this new year with all of its challenges, with all of its issues and problems and trials. I ask you, Lord, that you might fill us afresh with your love. 
We say it, Lord, because we need it. Too easy to be mad, to be, to be angry, or to be hateful. We see too much of it in our world, Lord. We need the love of Christ at work deep down within our hearts. And I pray. I pray, Father, that if there be anything in us that's not pleasing to you, help us, Lord. Help us to live for you. Help us to lay down, to lay down our swords and to take up, Lord, to take up the love of Christ. Paul said it constrained him. It drove him. And Lord, we need that very same thing. If, if we're going to face this year and handle things in the right way, for your glory, for your honor, for your praise, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.